The following podcast contains movie spoilers, unpopular opinions, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Listener discretion is advised. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. You're listening to Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. On Subgenre, the major categories are out, the more specific ones are in, and for season one, that has meant delving into the ballast and bombast of submarine movies. In today's show, the last full episode of our inaugural season, we are back to conclude our look at one of the most mispronounced films in cinema history, it stars Beverly Hills Cop 2 alumnus Jurgen Prochnow in a film by Enemy Mind director Wolfgang Peterson. Gibraltar, here we come. This is the finale of Das Boat, the director's cut. And joining me once again via Zoom from somewhere near Hollywood, Hollywood adjacent, is screenwriter and film buff Steve Baumgartner. Welcome back, Steve. Thank you, Josh. Hi, everybody. So we've been talking a whole lot about a whole lot of movie, Das Boat. I have been enjoying the heck out of this conversation. Likewise. For a movie I've seen so many times, just hearing you go through it is actually making it a better experience for me. I had not seen this movie in, I don't know, it's got to have been 10, 15 years or something. The last time I watched this all the way through from start to finish. And so the chance to go back and watch it again, it was a new experience all over again. It was kind of nice. How did you come upon this movie? Was it a film school thing or? No, I think what it was, was I sort of came of age movie wise in the early to mid 90s. And that was right about the time that indie film thing was really hitting its stride. And so that was the early days of, you know, Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs. And that was the early days of Kevin Smith. And that was, you know, all those people that sort of came out at about the same time and were making cool movies that made me want to work in a video store. And so I went and worked in a video store for a while, which still to this day uh, is the best job I have ever had. I would go back and do it in a heartbeat. I'm pretty sure that it was during that time period that I was introduced to this movie because this was a movie that people who were serious about film really seemed to like. Interesting. It's definitely like we've mentioned last week, uh, or last episode. Has it been a week? Has it been a week? Every, I know. I, every every like minute that. is like a year, Steve. I know. I know. <laughs> we talked about how in the 80s, this was sort of the lingua franca. Everybody knows this foreign movie, if they know a foreign movie in America. Sure. And um, somebody on the commentary had mentioned that year after year, it was the most popular video as well. So that even though stuff might have come afterwards that made a footprint, say, you know, Wings of Desire or something, Mm -hmm. it was still Das Boot. It really hung on. It hung on for a long time. And I think, too, it was also, you know, some of the lasting attention, certainly, and also affection for this movie is not just because it's an awesome movie, because it is, and not just because it has some quirkiness about it that's very memorable, which it does. But I think it's also just the fact that there's six or eight or 12 or 19 versions of this thing that keep coming out over and over and over again. And so it's sort of like, you know, remasters of different, you know, old records or whatever. It's like, well, I got to have, you know, the Beatles in mono and stereo, I may as well have the DOS boat director's cut and the Uber Duber director's cut. I can't wait till it's formatted for TikTok. I think that's <laughs> where it's really going to shine. That's the future. 
Oh, man. Well, <laughs> we only have so much time in this universe and so much more film to go. So let's jump back into talking about this film. And by the way, uh, everybody, if you have not yet listened to our previous episode, episode number eight, where we start this film, please stop now. Go listen to that episode or you're going to be severely lost as to what comes next. Uh, but if you are with us now, it is time to go back to our feature presentation. <laughs> When we last left this film, Werner, our correspondent who has been traveling on this ship and has been experiencing things for the first time that he has never experienced and has been experiencing terror like he has never seen before, had crawled himself following a, a big attack on the boat and depth charges and shaking and near death had crawled himself into a bunk to go to sleep. And we rejoin him as he awakens after all of this bombast and terror, he awakens to silence and relative peacefulness. And it's very, very different than what he crawled into bed in the fetal position experiencing before. Is it me or is that a weird way to kind of resolve the situation? I mean, I guess it prevents the anticlimax if we can't do anything except hope they don't hit us and then they go away. But I don't know that I would get any sleep if I were him. No, definitely, definitely <laughs> not. I can't get to sleep if there's a loud motorcycle that goes by outside. I'm certainly not going to sleep with the depth charges. Um, but he does. He manages to get some sleep because when he wakes, it's six hours later and the destroyers are gone. The two that were there that were raining charges down on them somehow have missed the target and the boat has survived. And the captain gets the chance to tell Werner, oh, yeah, hey, buddy, don't worry. They didn't kill us after all. And Thumbs up. Thumbs up, right? That's the thing you want to hear. That's good. You're not dead. You know, the afterlife is not stuck with these 47 guys in a tube. That's right. This is not it. We are alive. They feel safe enough to surface the boat. And so uh, surfacing the boat means that they get to go up and see the ships that their torpedoes, those first three, boom, 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 did hit. And they have blown away, essentially, two of the three boats that they hit. They're gone. There's a third boat that's still sitting there on the surface and refuses to sink, even though it's on fire and bent in half. And so they decide we're going to finish this thing off and sink it to the bottom of the ocean. And they go and ready a torpedo and, you know, loose and fire the torpedo and off it goes, hits this flaming hulk of a mess that's sitting out there in the ocean. The problem is that they discover too late there are still men on board. That's another weird thing about that, how we go from, I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to wake up later because I don't know, do they say how much time it's been? Six hours. Uh, six hours. Is the thinking of the captain, people who listen to the previous episode know that I don't have the sharpest mind for military tactics. <laughs> um, is it just the assumption that somebody must have come back to take care of these people? Because once the Germans see that these people, whatever chance they had of survival is now gone at the hands of their torpedoes there's a metaphor they regret it i'm pretty sure that in that scene the captain or or somebody uh, you know up there on the tower with him sa says something to that effect like why are they still here yeah. where, where are the boats to pick them up or something along those lines and so it is a surprise to everyone because the expectation is if you have not sunk then you potentially have gotten out of Mayday. And if you've gotten out of Mayday, then somebody is going to come pick you up. They're not going to let you just sit out there and burn and sink to the ocean if they can help it. But in this case, that didn't happen. I, I was really kind of surprised that this guy who really knew an experienced sailor 
made that assumption. That they would be picked up? Yeah. Well, I mean, were, anybody can make a mistake. There were two destroyers up there. There were two. And they eventually got done with whatever ever they were doing because they left. So I think it's a fair assumption that the destroyer who is from the same Navy as the ship that's on fire out there would make the circle and make sure that there's nobody to pick up. Whatever the case... That was the assumption. They fired this torpedo and too late discovered that there were guys still left on this ship. The ship is lit on fire. Guys are now on fire. They're jumping into the ocean. The ocean is filled with fuel. It's just, it's a bad situation altogether. And, you know, really as their only option, they start to swim toward the U-boat as a means of may as well get taken prisoner uh, versus, you know, drowning and dying in the ocean. And in that moment, the decision is made. We can't pick these guys up and they essentially back the sub away, dooming these poor bastards to drown and die. And that that isn't a decision that is a cold, heartless decision on, on the rest of the crew. It affects the crew, and it affects the captain. Yet again, another thing that humanizes people who you might be predisposed to think of as the enemy. There are scenes similar to this in, in some of the other movies that we've watched this season. I'm trying to remember exactly which one when it was, and it was probably the enemy below, but there is the moment where people are swimming toward the submarine, and in that movie, they are gunned down by the Nazis. These swimmers and the people on the lifeboats who are trying to come to them for help, they're gunned down in the ocean. In this case, it's backing the submarine away, but really the same effect. And back we go onto the submarine, having just doomed all of these other guys out there in the ocean to the briny depths. Um, we are at our sixth meal. We're, we've been counting meals in the last episode. We're going to continue counting them in this one. We are at our, at our sixth documented meal in the officer's mess. Unlike the others that have come before, everyone on this one is completely uh, you know, downhearted and glum having seen this scene. There are radiograms that appear, looks like there is another convoy that is under attack that other captains are pursuing. Our captain wants to pursue it, but he's in a position where he can't. After everything that has gone on, they've got no fuel left. Even if they had a straight line and knew exactly where they were going, which they sort of do, they don't have enough fuel to get there. And so the navigator, navigator by the name, I think it's Kreischbaum, um, who is played by Bernd Tauber, asks, okay, Captain, when are we going to turn back? We have no fuel. We've been blown to hell. We can't go do anything. When are we going to turn back for port? And the captain barks at him and says, when I order it. Go on. If we remember in this last bunch of chaos that happened and danger that one of our memorable characters, Johan from the diesel room had kind of lost it and had come up and was threatening to escape through the hatch and not go back to his post. And the captain was going to, you know, potentially shoot him if he wasn't prepared to do that. Johan has finally come down from that and has come back to his senses and comes to apologize. I mean, you can apologize to somebody, but if the person you're apologizing to doesn't reciprocate and kind of accept it, bit of a disappointment. A come down for Johan. He understands the stakes of what he did because he tells the captain, am I going to be court-martialed? And just you, the fear in his eyes, you know, in Nazi Germany, court-martialed is, I think, maybe kind of a euphemism for will I be shot? And he's saying, you know, is that going to happen here? And just sort of, you know, pleading outwardly and with his eyes. And the captain basically just tells him, go to bed, which is a way of saying it's no, you're not going to be, but just go get some rest. I need you. you know, it's a way of saying saying that, but it's also kind of, it leaves the door open. It's a way of saying for now. It's almost like they're a couple that's had a fight 
And it's the, <laughs> it's the equivalent of, you know, him saying, all right, I will stay tonight and we'll see tomorrow what happens. Yeah, we'll talk about this in the morning. We'll talk about this in the morning. It's the equivalent of that. It's at least a relief in the moment for Johan, right? He's not going to be chucked off the side of the boat or whatever. And so he goes back to what he's doing and, and doing his Johan stuff. And the captain decides, yeah, we, we're going to turn around. We're going to go back to base. So the next morning, lots of messages to decode, as there typically are. They are headed for shore, but there is a message that comes through for the captain that is pretty unique, and the crew member receiving it remarks as such. It's what he calls a what a triple-coded message. Yeah. And it's marked for the captain's eyes only, which is a first for everybody on board. While the captain is reading his triple-done message, the crew is all prepared to go home. They know that they're heading back to port. Port meaning La Rochelle, where they came from in France. And going back to port means going back to dry land and good food and single nurses, you know. And, you know, Ullman's betrothed. And Ullman's girlfriend turned secret fiance turned secret pregnancy. He gets to go home and deliver these letters himself, you know, to the, the woman that he loves. Everybody's in a good mood. But double secret probation message that Captain has gotten blows that up. And it's interesting the way, the fact that they have all these letters. I mean, obviously the postman didn't come. This was a sealed letter that has been on board. And it's kind of like, go to the cupboard and get out this letter. By the way, triple coded. So I, I thought that was a really... Um, that's interesting that it's like predestination for them in a way. It is. And I hadn't really thought about that until just now, because yeah, now that you think back on it, it's almost like wax sealed stamp by the king or whatever. It is that moment where he goes and digs in the cupboard and brings out the thing. So that was on there the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. That is weird. The helplessness in this movie of having to do things just because it's not yours to question. It's not yours to make a decision. It just runs all the way through. The orders that have been with them all along that he opens and is now reading say, no, you are not going back to La Rochelle. You are going to La Spezia in Spain, in the Mediterranean. Well, okay. And when I first heard that, I thought, ah, okay, you know, yeah, they're not going to La Rochelle where the French nurses are, but they're going to La Spezia where the Spanish nurses are. Like that, that's okay. Mediterranean, it's warm, it's tropical. Forgetting and soon reminded by everybody else on board that to get to Spain, they have to pass through the Strait of Gibraltar. And if you weren't paying attention in geography class, kids, the Strait of Gibraltar is really this narrow channel that is the gateway to the Mediterranean. You know, you turn left coming off of the Atlantic Ocean, you go, you know, between the giant rocks, and when you're on the other side, which is, you know, Gibraltar, and when you're on the other side of the rocks, then you're in the Mediterranean. The problem is it is about the size of, you know, a walnut, essentially, as far as a sub is concerned, to get from one side to the other. And uh, it, there might be other people's ships there. Could be. Could yeah. be. Would those people uh, be the British? Could be, yeah. Yeah, there might be British ships. There might be British mines. There might be underwater attack dogs. I don't know what the British have. I'm not their biographer. It's bad. Whatever it is, it's bad. It and people sucked. on yeah. the boat know it. This is not just the captain's wisdom. This is even the green people are sort of letting the other green people know that this is not going to be a picnic. And if you look at or listen to you know the expressions and, and what everybody's saying, 
it's almost an impossibility that everybody kind of looking at it as a bit of a death sentence to try to do this, except for the captain. And the captain is keeping a positivity about him outwardly, that this is possible. Are we sure that the crew at large thinks that? Because as far as the death sentence goes, because later there's a character who realizes the captain made a decision. He says, oh, that's why he made that decision. Of course, that character doesn't have the same sub-smarts, maybe, that the regular I think at that point, probably the disappointment of not going to Low Rochelle is maybe like outweighing the thoughts of exactly what this is going to entail with the rest of the crew. But I think the rest of the crew, at least the ones that have been around for a while, you know, have a good sense that this has the possibility of not ending well. Mm. So outwardly, the captain is for the crew is maintaining, ah, don't worry about it. It's no sweat. Yeah. We're going to work it out. Business as usual. Uh, secretly and on the side, he is belying that a bit because he is making alternate plans for our correspondent and for the chief. The chief, uh, for those of you who may have forgotten from our last episode, has a wife who is sick. I don't know if they say it's cancer, but it's serious. It's something from which she could perish. And so he, the captain, makes arrangements that before they try to pass through the Straits of Gibraltar, that they are going to stop in Vigo, which is is Vigo, Portugal. I think Vigo may be Portugal. And they are going to drop off the correspondent and chief in Vigo. And then there's like the Nazi network that can help them get home and sneak them home. I think he says, even if they have to dress you like gypsies, there's a way for them to get home and not go through what the captain is afraid is not going to be a good time going through the Strait of Gibraltar. And it's like a rest stop on the side of the highway where they can restock. It is. And so, you know, what does that mean? It means more bananas and... and (laughs) You know, loaves of bread that aren't green get to be put into the submarine. And so the sub itself gets restocked with provisions. A big deal is happening. When they get to Vigo, the captain and the first lieutenant and the second lieutenant and the correspondent and the chief and kind of this party of people get off of the submarine and board this other vessel that's waiting for them there in the harbor, which has other Nazi officers aboard it uh, who have brought other supplies and they're smuggling torpedoes and they're, it's this nice, it's like a yacht. They get off of a, yeah. of this you know crappy little submarine and get onto a mega yacht. It's, it's quite the discrepancy, which of course is played up in the scene we're about to describe. It, also the way that it's shot is like suddenly they are there and it's a kind of location that we haven't seen yet in this movie. And at this point we've been in the tube for like an hour and a half easily, I would say. Prior to getting off this boat and going to this ship in Vigo and the captain's been having this conversation with you know the correspondent and everybody, correspondent doesn't want to go. He tells the captain, he says, no, I signed on for this whole thing. Like, I want to go with you. And the captain's like, no, do you, you, no trust me, you don't. And uh, you're, it's already settled, I think is what he says. And yeah, sends and I think off. he says something like it's easier with two people. But basically, you're doing chief a favor by going with him. And it also helps, I think, correspondent because he has this other sort of secondary mission, which is he's able to go back to the, the kid who has the pregnant girlfriend and say, hey, you know, all of those letters that you've been writing, would you like me to deliver them for you? I'm being dropped off. I can take them there and deliver them to your girl. And it's a relief to the kid and who says, yeah, absolutely, and gives him the stack of letters. Because if a stack, I mean, we're talking a good 10 inches stack of letters. And so he's going to smuggle them with him and take them back to Germany and kind of take this off of this kid so that he can let his girl know that he's still thinking of them. So that's sort of what leads (laughs) us up to 
everybody stepping off the submarine and stepping onto the mega yacht. And on the yacht, there is this moment of confusion where our proper first officer, our proper first lieutenant in his dress uniform uh, steps forward and is confused for the captain. Yeah, which actually the filmmakers kind of admitted was a bit of a, they said you could have, they could have told by the uniforms, you know, but it was such a good dramatic moment for them that they went with it. And so, you know, they come up and they shake his hand. Oh, captain, oh, captain. And, and first lieutenant's very uncomfortable. And, and says, uh, no, it's it's this guy over here on my left. Yeah. And, you know, everybody else is just raggedy, having been on this sub forever. But the stick in the mud is in his uniform. The stick in the mud is in his uniform. And, and somehow everyone it's else looks like they came out of a you know, Land's End catalog or something like that. <laughs> and the uniform is pressed. That's the thing that impresses me most is he found time and means to press the uniform. I can't believe the guy shaved. I mean, everybody in this movie is just letting it go, except this one guy. You can't, you can't let the beard grow, then you don't look as good and as much like a proper Nazi uh, as you should. But in his dress uniform, and with everybody else as shabbily as they are, they are introduced to the largest buffet of food and descriptions of that buffet by the officers that they have seen in a very long while. So everybody is filling their plates. There are glasses poured. There's a toast. The captain is pressed for details by these officers. You know, tell us some war stories. Tell us the sea stories, to which he he really only replies, they almost had us this time. It, it definitely is a class difference between these guys. We've got the rough and ready submariners with these other people who feel like the CEO, the upper management types, where they're well-dressed, they're in the left luxury but one thing is that and i think they've already done this i think they do what they mean it's like oh these are the heroes yes that these guys whether as a tactic or not it, it's like we're on the top of the mountain but we acknowledge you and we anoint you heroes which our captain at the very least is smart enough to see through and kind of like stop blowing smoke and that's also that's werner the correspondent that's his job when he first steps onto the boat is to propel this myth of the heroes he's there to report on the heroes he's there to take heroic pictures you know that moment where he gets the oily rag thrown in his face is essentially him trying to get people to move and pose in ways that perpetuate that narrative and so here now he's gone through this whole thing and become one of the guys and now he's put in that position of now he's a hero because he's you know interesting yeah i hadn't thought of that that's certainly a transition that the character makes but uh, I hadn't considered it from the point of view it's like the military people the military brass is doing that to these people what he's trying to make the public regard these right. people as and right about that time a gentleman in an even more pressed outfit uh, Herr Seewald appears and he has some orders and, and a radiogram and hands them off to the captain captain pulls both correspondent and the chief aside takes them outside and kind of drops a bad news bomb yeah says uh you know that plan that you guys had to get to leave takes these backsies you got to go with us we got new plans new orders the orders specifically say i cannot drop you here you will not be smuggled back that is not a thing uh you need to come back on the boat and go with us through the strait of gibraltar my bad I'm sorry. The way it's got to be. Which culminates then in Werner having to go back to the kid, Ullman, and hand him back his stack of letters and break the kid's heart. You're really moved by this kid and his letters, aren't you? I am. I am. You know, of all the wide-eyed kids that are on this boat, you know, they talked about there's basically children at this point being sent to fight in submarines. Like, he's the wide eyeest of yeah. everybody who's on this boat. And you just, I can't help but feel for the guy. You see, as soon as, like, he said, I've got a girl back home, and I'm going to be a dad. <laughs> and I just said, dead meat. Yep. Check. You Start know, the timer. Uh, Start the timer before he <laughs> Yeah, he's... it's like... Is it also two days until your retirement, Chief? I don't know. That's, 
yeah, so off we go. Everybody, back in the boat. We shut the lid. We head for Gibraltar. Gibraltar will suck. We are told that there's only seven miles between coasts, between the Rock of Gibraltar on the, I think it's on the Spanish side, and the other side, which is the, whatever's on the tip of Africa there. Is that uh, Morocco or Algeria or whatever is right there at the, at the beginning? Seven miles. Seven miles is nothing, especially when it is filled with British boats of all kinds, including those dreaded destroyers that we don't like very much with all of their depth charges. And so we need a plan. We can't just show up and say, hey, we're here. And so the plan that the captain comes up with and conveys to the crew is, okay, the way this is going to work is, A, we're going to move at night, okay. B, we're not going to do it surfaced, we're going to do it diving. Okay, yeah, kind of figured that one. But C is that we are not going to propel ourselves, that we are essentially going to float with the current through the strait. We are just going to be another piece of driftwood that's going through the strait and off to the other side, and we will surface somewhere over there, footloose and fancy free. And oh, by the way, added bonus, you know, remember how we had no fuel? This will save us fuel. We're just going to drift on through. (laughs) It'll be fine. What a deal. What a deal. And the crew is eager to, I think, go along with this because A, the captain said it and, you know, they dig on the captain and you'd have to follow the captain and you'd kind of trust the captain's word and he's gotten you this far. So why wouldn't you think he knows what he's doing? And the crew, I think, wants to believe it too, that it's going to be this easy. And of course, it's not going to be this easy. But at this point, this is what we're going with. And so they approach the strait. It's night. And by golly, if half the English fleet isn't you know, sitting there in the harbor, hanging out. Krishbaum spots a destroyer. Oh, look, there's a destroyer, but okay, it's fine. It's moving on, right? It's it's going past us. We don't have to worry about that one. Everybody just be cool. And then the destroyer isn't. There's this kind of moment of confusion to where, may, is it turning around? Is it coming back? There's Gibraltar right in front of us. It looks like we're going to be okay and we're going to make it. And then, alive! Here come the airplanes. Which is kind of interesting that there's an airplane that spots them because I would guess even at seven miles, they're certainly worried, but I would have thought that there'd be enough people on all these British ships that somebody would be skipping stones or something. And it's like, oh, look, but an airplane makes sense as well. And it is yet another escalation of the torments that these people are going to face. It's the one thing they hadn't counted on. When they're thinking about the dangers and how this plan is going to work, they're thinking what's below the water and what's on the water. And there is somehow not really a thought as to what is well above them all. And that's the thing that ends up blowing their cover. I'm not enough of a historian to know what the air forces were at the time. Is it just a totally freak, how did this happen thing? There happened to be a plane there or, because I I would think that if they've got boats there, they, they would also have planes. You're near land. There might be some sort of, you know, airport landing strip, whatever there. You're near boats. There might be an aircraft carrier, you know, that this thing has come and gone from. It also felt to me, it was almost a little too convenient that that happened if they hadn't already knew they were coming somehow. So that's what it felt like to me was was that the British Navy, which we are not given access to, to know whether or not this is true or how they would have, but it almost felt like they knew they were coming and our guys were essentially walking into a trap. And I can't prove that, you know, it's, it's not in the film, but that to me is what it felt like when this happened. Interesting. They've got to do something. The planes are coming. So what do you do when planes attack and you're in a submarine, you have to dive? Well, you, they can't dive immediately because the captain is still up there on the tower and Krishbaum, the navigator, has been hit 
So, you know, he's taken one in the shoulder or the chest and the captain's still up there. And so finally, 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 they managed to get both those guys down into the sub. They pull the hatches and boom, 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 boom. The ship is hit pretty bad and things are not looking great. And so captain tells everybody to prepare to abandon ship. And he puts the ship at flank speed, which is as fast as you can go, basically, you know, pedal to the metal on the boat and really is trying to gate crash the Straits of Gibraltar. He's just trying essentially to go as fast as he can and get through there as fast as he can before everybody can get their act together and come after them and do what they need to do. He's just trying to get to the other side. And so that's the plan now. They flood their tanks, they dive. The problem is when they dive this time, the bow plane. So this is the up-down rudder on the ship that makes it go, you know, says you're, you're, you're going towards the surface, you're going towards down. The bow plane gets stuck in the down position, and that's bad. I've heard that's bad, Steve. Were you always this knowledgeable about submarines, or has this podcast been a growing experience for you? Both. Have I always been this knowledgeable about submarines? No, I've been this knowledgeable about war movies. I've mentioned this several times before, but I grew up watching specifically World War II movies, but war movies in general as just a thing I did with my dad. Like that was that was our bonding experience. You know, you'd stay up and you'd watch uh, war movies. And a lot of those and the ones I enjoyed a lot were submarine films. And so I think by osmosis, I've learned what a bow plane is, but <laughs> and I'm probably still wrong. Please, whoever's listening, correct me. I'm sure I'm, in, I'm entirely wrong about this, but... Uh, but yeah, that's one thing I can talk about. You're right as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that's what's important, Steve. That's what's important. Yeah, as man long with as no you, military experience. As long as you believe me and I think I'm right, that's what matters in this moment. So <laughs> it's stuck, whatever it is, right? The bow plane is stuck, and that means that the submarine is going down and that it cannot go up. And when yeah. you are in a boat heading towards the bottom of what is essentially a relatively shallow channel the down, down, down action that you've got is not a good one. They have to correct that. And so they start trying all the things that they can. And one of the first things that they do is they run all of the guys who aren't steering the damn thing in the boat. They run every single person toward the aft of the boat. So if you figure that the front of the boat is pointing down and the aft is pointing up in the air, they run all these guys uphill to try to get all of the weight out of the front of the boat so that it sinks slower. And when that doesn't work, then they blow their tanks, which basically means, you know, the air tanks that are giving buoyancy to this submarine, they are blowing the air out of those and hoping that that lightens the boat and that the boat will rise on its own accord. But the boat won't respond. It keeps going down, 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 down. And at some point, that downward action becomes beyond control. There is nothing you can do about it. They are heading toward the bottom of the ocean. And you are given this, you know, another submarine trope here. You are given this ticking clock by way of, I think it's the chief who is counting down the meters until they hit the bottom. And we've already had twice before in this movie. It's like, we're down deep, but we're okay. We're down deeper and we're not so okay. And we know that they're going down deeper still. Yeah, this is down deepest. And there's not only that, but they're surrounded by people who want them dead on the surface. Right, right. If we go up, we got problems. If we go down, we got even bigger problems. So nothing is good, but down they go, counting the meters until we hit the bottom, and boom, this whole giant-ass submarine hits the bottom of the channel and it essentially crashes. 
It's a plane crash, train crash, whatever, with a submarine on the bottom of the ocean. They hit the bottom, and that should have destroyed the sub. They would have hit rocks, they would have hit other junk at the bottom, and that should have burst the sub and killed them all, but it doesn't. And you get a line from the captain who says, with no small amount of glee, God threw a shovel full of sand under our keel. Which is actually one of the previous sailor who I don't think we've focused on a lot is turning to prayer at this moment, which is causing tension as well with the other sailors because they're trying to get things done. They look upon what he's doing as not helpful. So I I thought it was interesting that the captain invokes God at this point. And part of the reason he's so jazzed beyond the fact that they hit the bottom and didn't blow open is that they're at 280 meters. And 280 meters is well beyond the tolerances or the assumed tolerances of this boat and when it should have a problem like a fatal problem. They have survived that. It's German engineer. It's Farfignugan. It's Farfignugan. <laughs> well, and it's also one of those things where this movie is full of all these great wheels on the wall and luminescent dials that have a needle saying, you're here, you're here, you're here. And at 280, yep. you're out of the red. You're yep. not only in the red, you're past the red. Yeah, you are red plus. And everything is fine. And everybody takes a deep you know, sigh of relief until there is this moment of peace that is then punctuated by terror because after having been at 280 meters for more than a few minutes uh, when everything was fine all of a sudden everything starts to go wrong there are leaks that start happening and water kind of going everywhere there are valves that blow there are rivets that are shooting out of the walls you know we had talked about this earlier that they're essentially just large bolts like bullets firing out of the wall from the pressure the boat starts taking on water everywhere And all you can do as a crew person in this situation is your job to save your own life. And so you can't run around in terror. You can't sit and pray. You know, you just can't in these moments. You're grabbing uh, wrenches and you're grabbing leakage plugs and you're basically trying to put a Band-Aid on a decapitated head. (laughs) Not literally. You will not see that in this movie. (laughs) You will not see that. Not in this cut. Not in this cut. Wait, wait for the next ones. Yeah, but the TV miniseries cut, bloody as hell. That's right. And so in the midst of all this organized chaos, the captain is still demanding proper damage reports. Like, I will have order on this ship that's sinking and we're all dying and we will do this correctly. I want proper damage reports. And so Chief is going back and forth to each of the compartments and, you know, seeing what's wrong and coming up and reporting it and other people's are reporting it. And one of the things that the chief notices is that there's acid in the bilge, which means that the batteries are leaking. And if we don't have all of our batteries or a certain number of batteries, even if we could figure out how to get this, the leak stopped, we would have no way of raising this submarine back up to the surface. We would all be trapped down here forever and die. And so it becomes the chief's job to bridge the damaged battery cells, meaning basically to draw power from the ones that work over to the ones that aren't working as a way to kind of, you know, uh, I'm guessing here, but as as a way to kind of jumpstart the ones that aren't working. That was my impression too. And so to do that, you need wire. There's an entire giant submarine where no one can seem to find a piece of wire to the, the consternation of the captain. They finally do. They find some wire. They give it to Chief. And Chief, to go fix this thing, is having to do my, one of my worst nightmares, which is kind of slide himself into a very tight compartment. 
Yeah. Oh, just the claustrophobia is just horrible. It's almost like, you know, those those rollers, those sleds that the guys will lay on to go under your car to change your oil. Like it's the equivalent of that if the car was about three inches from their forehead as they're going underneath it and was sealed off on all other sides. Yeah, I was going to say, and like less than three inches from your shoulder blades on each side. Yeah. So, or not your shoulder blades, your shoulders. So, And that's what he's got to do. He's got to go under there and do it whether he wants it or not. He's got to go save their lives. While he is doing that, Johan comes forward to the captain to report that he and his guys have stopped all the leaks, that we are no longer taking on water, uh, which means that Johan has stuck around in this moment where he could have panicked again and has done his job. And the captain tells him that he's proud of him. And that's really sort of, you know, we talked about them having a lover's quarrel earlier. Uh, we'll talk about this tomorrow. That seems to be the moment where he says, we're friends again. Yeah, it's redemption. They fixed that problem. The leaks have stopped. Chief is working on getting the batteries going. So he's working on that problem. The last problem that they really have at this point is that they have to get the water out of the boat because with all this water inside the boat, it's extra weight. They can't rise. And so the plan to get the water out of the boat is to get it to the control room bilge and then expel the water out into the ocean to clear everything out. In order to do that in a submarine like this, they have to manually, because there are no pumps working, there's no power, they have to manually move the water from one end of the sub to the other. It's bucket brigade time. That was fascinating to watch. Because, you know, think about filling up a bucket with water. Just, you know, go out to a swimming pool and take a bucket of water. Now imagine how long it would take you to bucket out the swimming pool. That's what they were doing. They had motivation. They had motivation. That's true. But they do this for hours and hours and hours. And I would imagine thousands of buckets, you know. And while they're doing this, Chief is, he's managed to bridge these batteries. And now there's five to go. And now there's three to go. Everybody is straight up exhausted the first lieutenant continues to report terrible news about other things that are failing on the ship. Ask the captain if they have any chance. This guy who has shown up to fight for his country and has now seen the reality of what it means to show up and fight for your country. Uh, ask the captain, do we have any chance? And the captain's response is just, good question. And he's, he's somebody who I think the crew probably would be able to turn to at this point for, I think they respect him. And I think that at other times he would uh, not be so, um, he wouldn't leave the question up to chance. Well, he's got to come up with something, pull out one more trick about how they're going to get this sub up to the surface. That's his job. And what he comes up with is, you know what? There might be a little bit of air pressure left in the tanks, just enough to surface us if we can get the rest of this water out. So boys, grab your buckets, keep uh, moving the water from the downside to the upside in the boat. Let's get this boat out of here and we will find out if they do when we get back. Let's take a break. What if, and follow me here, what if the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum in Paris is a fake? Or what if artist Vincent Van Gogh, you know, the sunflowers and starry night guy, he didn't kill himself, but instead was actually murdered. You'll hear these incredible stories and a lot more when you subscribe to the Art Curious podcast. How did a cutthroat rivalry between two Renaissance masters culminate in one of the greatest artworks of all time? And was a British painter actually the real Jack the Ripper? On Art Curious, host and, truth be told, my lovely voiced wife, Jennifer Dassel, explores the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. 
And do you need to love art or even know anything about it to love this show? Are you kidding me? Before listening to Art Curious, I knew exactly nothing about fine art or the weird and amazing stories that seem to follow around some of its most iconic works and artists. Like, how did Leonardo's Salvador Mundi become the most expensive artwork ever sold at auction? And where has it disappeared to ever since? A best-of recommendation by reviewers at Oh The Oprah Magazine, PC Magazine, Salon, Uproxx, it goes on and on. Art Curious is podcast storytelling for the art lover and the art novice, like me, and maybe you. It's the juiciest, the most shocking, and the most fascinating tales from the world of paintbrushes, printmakers, and patrons. Season 9 is out now, so subscribe today to the Art Curious Podcast with Jennifer Dassel and find out more about the show at artcuriouspodcast.com or by searching for Art Curious, that's one word, in your favorite podcast app. The Art Curious Podcast, that's A-R-T-C-U-R-I-O-U-S. The Art Curious Podcast, subscribe for season nine now. If you've listened to other podcasts, and really by this point we're going to assume you have, then you've probably heard our name, Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and creative video. We produce the shows you can't wait to binge, like the acclaimed Art Curious Podcast. And of course, this thing, can we call it a show? Oh, sure we can. Subgenre. But did you know we're also available to creatively consult on your podcast too? That's right. We're here to turn your hobby into a professional-grade production that sounds just like the storytelling, discussion, or investigative podcast you download, all with help from our award-winning team. Treat your show seriously and get noticed with help from Kabunki. Mention this ad to get 10% off your first consultation. Find out more at kabonki.com. That's kabunki.com. Kabunki.com. Kabunki. You're listening to Subgenre. I am here with Steve Baumgartner, and we are talking about the film Das Boat. Steve, it is an enormous film. This is an enormous conversation. Are you are you doing okay? Could I get you some water? Could I get you some fresh air? <laughs> Where we are in the movie, I don't think water is a very good idea. That, this is true. That, I didn't think about that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Skip the water. Put, put that bucket down. Speaking of water, I guess, and before we get into the exciting conclusion of this film, maybe let's take a deep dive. <laughs> In today's deep dive, I think we want to talk about Francois Truffaut. Yeah, I believe it was him who uh, made this quote at one point saying, there's no such thing as an anti-war film. I haven't seen the primary source of this, but my understanding of it through the years is that when you make a narrative movie about wartime and war exploits, that you unavoidably make war appealing in a way. You make it stimulating. You show people who have who bonds and make relationships and become their best selves in a way. Um, or you, you're pushing an ideology. So the idea that war is bad cannot be captured in a movie. I don't think I agree with that. And uh, when I was watching this movie, I was thinking, I think this movie does a good job of not glamorizing war. I think that you're getting a lot more out of the personal interactions in this movie than I have. I don't think the relationships in this movie are such that out of this situation, they're necessarily going to persevere. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily know that people are going to hold fond memories of their relationship with the people. And as we've talked about a lot in part one, 
the movie is careful not to, the ideology for which these soldiers are fighting is not necessarily held by the soldiers themselves. In fact, more often than, so you're not put in a position where you consciously or subconsciously adopt the ideology of the people you're identifying with. You're identifying with them on a humanistic situational level rather than an ideological political level. I guess spell it out a little bit more for me, because is the reason why you feel like it breaks with Truffaut's statement, this movie Dust Boat, because the bad is so bad? You know, in a way, yeah. The movie is really a grind when you get down to it. I I mean, my feeling is that this movie is not the crew. This movie is not the cause. This movie is the boat and how it affects the people. And very few people in this movie get to make decisions. They're basically told what to do. A lot of it is sort of waiting out and hoping things go their way. For the suffering they endure, I don't know that I would say they have a whole lot of effect. I think we're happy that when they survive things, but we don't feel like they're being held up as heroic or somebody that you'd want to emulate because you wouldn't want to be in this situation. It kind of feels too, I mean, I'm trying to think while you're saying that, I'm thinking of other war movies that I have seen, you know, both domestic and foreign. And another one that comes to mind that maybe fits this mold is Platoon. Yeah, I I would kind of agree with that. Because I I think you look at, you know, Charlie Sheen's character and the other characters that are in there go through these moments that potentially in other movies, these battles, you know, against an overwhelming enemy and everybody is surviving and, and, you know, doing heroic things that in other movies could have been treated differently to really only focus on that moment of heroics. And instead of, as Oliver Stone does in that movie, really focuses at least the same amount of attention on the parts of it that suck. Yeah, that is, it's sort of, I mean, I would say more so in Das Boot, yeah. but, uh, but that it's it's a hopeless situation. And the victory is just getting through it, as opposed to a lot of war movies where your protagonists, either they win and they're winners and you're really happy that they've done this, or they lose, but they've sacrificed nobly. And in a way, that's its own reward. Nobody wants to have a movie where people perish and it's like, ah, it didn't mean nothing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this movie kind of skirts that, I would say. I think your point on this, Truffaut saying you can't make an anti-war movie because movies inherently make war either exciting or more interesting or palatable for an audience by virtue of just it is a movie and you want people to watch it. I I think in this instance, the bads being so bad on this and the goods in DOS Boat not necessarily being the focus of what this movie is about. It really is a focus on those things which you don't want to be doing or have to be put in that position. I I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, the the emotional reaction that I get out of DOS Boat It not one of inspiration. Again, I haven't done military service, so maybe people who have will see this movie and say, you know, that really resonated with me because I've made these bonds in bad situations. Whether they'd say it's a pro-war and anti-war movie, I don't know. But I I don't think that using war as a theater for this narrative, war doesn't come off very well in this movie. Let's put it that way. Uh, Not only for the world at large, but for these individuals. And you can make arguments, well, people grow and change. But really, I, I think that they just get worn down. They're in service to the machine. And the machine is not going to do any good for anybody. Yeah, the machine is broken already. They're in, yeah. they're in service to a broken machine. And maybe you can only do that when you make a movie about the side that loses. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if Germany had won this movie were there, you know, maybe their sacrifices would be like, ah, but you know what? They did knock out that one boat, so it was all worth it. You're not alone in this feeling, Steve. I think there was a 1997, April 97 review that Roger Ebert did of <laughs> Das Boat, and the last line in that review is, Francois Truffaut said it is impossible to make an anti-war film because films tend to make war look exciting. In general, Truffaut was right, but his theory doesn't extend to Dust Boat. Oh, there you go. There you go. You and Ebert. <laughs> yeah, I channel him. It's a fascinating comment. It is an interesting thing to think about. I am sure that I am going to be contemplating that uh, stance the, the next time I am watching any war movie and putting it up against Truffaut's comment. So thank you for bringing that here for us to talk to. That's That's been interesting to talk about. Let's get back to our feature presentation. When we left there was this idea that potentially there might be enough air pressure left in the tanks of the submarine that they get one chance at it. But if that is true and they they blow it, it might be enough to surface them and uh, get them off the bottom of the ocean so long as they can get all of this water that's built up in the boat out. The chief has an idea. Uh, you know, he can get the main pump working. Got to get this water out, but he can get the main pump working. And in about six to eight hours they can be in a position to try this. The problem, among many others, I guess, the problem on this submarine is that there's just not enough oxygen in this sub to last six or eight hours for the amount of men that are on this submarine at that time, at least not working at full capacity and acting as per normal. And so what happens is that everyone who is non-essential is ordered to their bunks. Go to your bunks. Don't breathe up all my oxygen and are laid down are given oxygen masks and are told just to kind of chill for a while, which they do. Johan, at some point in this, for some reason that I, I'm still contemplating, takes to eating an orange peel and all, just bites right into it, you know, okay. Oh, I actually have done that. Have you? And, yeah. and the verdict? Well, I don't do it much anymore. <laughs> Pilgrim reports that all is going well in the back of the boat and the captain goes to check on all the men. And this, I think, if I am not incorrect, this is about the first time we have seen the captain go to where the men are, right? He's been in the officer's mess. He's been on the bridge. This is one of the first times that I can recall that he has kind of gone into that space. And he's going there to check on his men. You know, these are the people under him. And so in the process of doing so, you know, he's noticing different things. You know, the, the oxygen mask has slipped out of the mouth of one of the sailors that's sleeping. And so he goes by and puts the mask back in the uh, guy's mouth and just makes sure that he's still breathing. It's a moment where he's not just by his good ideas, but by his immediate actions, he's showing care for these men that are under him. It's right then that the correspondent that Werner awakes, because he's been in the bunks too, he awakes and finds the captain sitting right there on the edge of the bunk, like sitting over him. And the captain confesses to him, it was a crazy idea to try to go through the strait. You know, I, I knew that ever since I got the radiogram that we were going to have to go to Gibraltar. I knew that this was kind of a nutty idea. That is why I wanted you and I wanted the chief off the boat, because basically I knew that this there was little chance that we were going to get through this thing. Why do you think the captain chooses Werner to be his uh, you know, confessor. Maybe it's because Werner is the only person on that boat who is not usually under the command of the captain. He's an outsider. He's the one outsider on the boat. And so for whatever reason, there's a freedom in 
talking to him that maybe he doesn't feel like he has with any of the other enlisted men or officers that are on the boat. I don't know. It's a good question. That's, that makes a lot of sense, though, because, I mean, Ferner doesn't have, you know, he's a breed apart and he doesn't have a ship responsibility. You know, we see him standing around looking worried a lot of the time, but we do while well, other people are doing things. Werner takes this moment of this connection between both of them sort of sitting on the edge of the bunks as the ship is sitting on the bottom of the ocean and ask him honestly, hey, captain, are we ever going to surface? And the captain gives him back, I think, what is a very honest answer, which is, I don't know, maybe. It's not the thing you want to hear from, <laughs> from the captain, but at least it's honest, I guess. And then back to sleep, Werner goes. Yeah. <laughs> He's just, he's sleeping. You got to chalk this one up, I think, to the carbon dioxide in the uh, the atmosphere. It just makes you sleepy. It's like sitting in a garage with the car on. That's basically what he's doing inside the sub. Yeah, that's people are sleeping in the masks and they've got those breathing apparatuses to sort of have the oxygen last a little bit longer. But but let's be honest, Werner is somebody who sleeps a lot during important <laughs> he sleeps times. a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, maybe people would have accepted him quicker if he didn't just say, oh, this looks bad. I'm going to hit the bunk. And and actually, I want to correct myself. I want to back up because in that moment that we just talked about to where the, hey, it was a crazy idea to go through the strait and are we ever going to surface? I was thinking of the next moment that's coming. When he's talking with Chief? Yeah, he's talking with Chief in that moment. And, and he he it's actually the captain asking Chief, hey, Chief, are we ever going to surface? And Chief, whose kind of idea mm -hmm. this is and who's been working on the batteries and stuff, is the one that says, I don't know. And I'm confusing that with what happens next, which is what we just described. The captain ends up on the end of Werner's bunk. And Werner essentially asks a version of the question. Werner, Werner asks, you know, is it hopeless? And uh, the captain tells him, well, been 15 hours. I'm not sure that Chief is going to be able to pull this one off and get the pump working. And sure enough, right about that point, uh, he has proven wrong because Chief stumbles in and he has fixed the electric motor and the pump. Oh, and by the way, also the compass and by yeah. the way, the sonar. So, But that's... But there's more. Yeah. They're not out of the woods yet. They're not out of the woods yet, but but he's basically gone in and like refurbished the sub or something while while everybody's been sleeping. Right. Uh, it's, it's a new sub. Pimp my U-boat. It's Pimp my U-boat. The captain is, you know, as near tears as Jurgen Prochnow is going to get and just says, good chief. Good job, buddy. Everybody has some relief going to them. You know, Werner is, is smiling again. The captain's able to breathe and kind of says out loud to himself, you know, all you need is good people. And so he goes to address the crew, his good people. And he good. says, hey, everybody, here's the plan. You know, remember that plan I had before where we were going to float by underneath the Strait of Gibraltar? Okay, that didn't work. Remember that plan I had where we were going <laughs> to bum rush the gates and, and get through to the other side? That didn't work. We're now on the bottom of the ocean. So I have a new plan. That plan is that we are going to try, we're going to get one chance, we're going to try to blow these tanks, like Chief says we might be able to, and we're going to pray that the diesel works. And we're going to get lucky, hopefully, that the British, because we've been down here for 15 hours, that the British are not going to expect us. They're going to feel like we are gone or dead or sunk. Everybody good with that? Anybody have any better ideas? <laughs> I almost shot Johan earlier for disagreeing with me, so anybody <laughs> want to speak up? No, nobody has a better idea. Nobody speaks up. He asked the men, are you ready to go? They are. So everybody gets into battle station positions, which Pilgrim rejoins uh, everybody and sits at his chair to do what Pilgrim does on the boat. And everybody is ready to make this work. And so they listen for surface contact. They don't hear any. Nobody's up there. The captain looks to chief. Chief looks to the captain. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, here we go. And they blow the tanks. And there's this long kind of pregnant pause that goes on of what's going to happen. 
and everybody sits and just watches the depth meter and hopes something goes. And when you say everybody sits, this is the moment where Wolfgang Peterson removed a wall so he could basically get this row of faces all staring at the gauge. This is the one moment everybody got some elbow room while we were shooting. This is it. Yeah, the air conditioning was brilliant. All of the crew sits and watches the depth meter. We are trying to see if anything happens by blowing these tanks. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And finally, there is a little rumble. And the boat begins to shake. And then the boat begins to shake a little more. And then it starts to rise. And the gauge that had been parked at 280 meters or below, like pegged into the red, suddenly starts to show that they are gaining. Can you have altitude underwater? They're gaining altitude underwater. They're going up. Yep. And, and that's great. And so the giant cheer from everybody, we're, we're saved. We're not going to die on the bottom of this ocean. A chief who had been counting down all of the ticking uh, meters as we were going down to the bottom now gets to count them as we go up. And finally, we get to surface. The, the boat hits the surface. Boom. We come up above the water. Captain opens the hatch. I love this moment where all the guys are, they don't get to go up onto the tower, but they're down there just gathered around breathing in what air comes through to that open hatch. Yeah, you really feel it there. And it's also the moment where, you know, we talked about, hey, we got to pray that the diesels work now that we've surfaced. Okay, everybody say your prayer. And they try the diesels and boom, they fire to life. We have power. We are surfaced and the captain yells, they won't get us this time. And Johan yells at the diesels, hang in there, damn it. And sure enough, the Brits don't notice them and they get through and this submarine adventure underwater and above it works out and comes to a conclusion. Oh, oh, oh hold the phone, What? Josh. What? You, you know this movie isn't over. <laughs> there are, are still tricks up on Are you up saying, are you saying that it doesn't end happily like this? Surely not. I would not say it ends happily. No. Okay. Uh, okay. It's plainus ex machina. <laughs> what was the ancient Latin word for plain? I, I, I believe plain. I plainus <laughs> sounds correct. Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> so at least our guys get off the bottom of the ocean. Their misadventure at the bottom of the sea uh, comes to an end, and they make it to port and pull up at port. It's daytime. The sun is shining. Tipperary is playing as, again, again, yeah. again, as the, you know, everybody is disembarking from the sub. And all of this time, we thought that maybe the sailors who had been injured, uh, you know, weren't going to make it. But they're taking them off the yeah. sub and putting them in an ambulance. They make it kind of seem, or at least the impression I got, was that the movie is going to end on a, I don't want to say lost innocence, but changed by the ordeal. Yeah. Because now these guys all have beards, like the earlier line prefaced. And it's harder to imagine them raising hell at a ship out party than it was based on how they look now. And there is this nice bookend of them coming back into port to almost the same fanfare. There's music, there's people waving banners and whatever, except this time when they're coming back, the sort of smiling, fresh-faced people are now haggard, bearded people, you know, yeah. coming back in. And they park themselves and, and start to disembark. They pass a giant sign on the side of a building as they're going in. It's in, it's in German, but it says, you know, we build for victory. You know, it's like you said, kind of this, what feels like an ending is going to be, yeah, we survived the battle, but we're changed 
completely for it uh, on on the other side of it. Some of them really change because of the, the, yeah. the, the Planus Ex Machina. The Planus Ex Machina, by which uh, Mr. Baumgartner is referring to just as everything seems as if the movie is going to end here with that kind of an ending, it doesn't. What happens is an air raid siren sounds, planes appear out of nowhere, and they start bombing the hell out of the dock. The people, the boats, the everything, there's machine gun fire, there's chaos that erupts, and what seems like nearly everyone takes a bullet or a bullet or an explosion or something else in this, nobody gets away unscathed. It's lightning fast. And so you get these last glimpses and images of these people that we have come to know on the submarine, either in states of panic uh, and hiding, in states of injury and writhing on the ground while other people are trying to take care of them. In a few cases, as in when our correspondent manages to make his way out toward the submarine, he finds a lot of the people, including the kid Ullman, the kid with the letters, letters dead. Yeah. So there's a lot of the people that we knew that are now injured or dead. The only person, Johan is out there. Chief is there, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Second they, lieutenant is somewhere in there as well. Yeah, he, yeah, he's as well. I, first lieutenant, I don't think we find out what happens to him. No, at least not that I noticed. Who knows? The guy in the ambulance. Like, you never find out if the ambulance got blown up or whatever. The only person who really seems to be still up and moving outside when correspondent gets out there is the captain. And it doesn't look like he's unhit. It looks like he has taken something, but he is holding himself up and his look is watching his submarine sitting there in port. At least out of everything, that submarine survived. And then... Boom, planes bomb this thing uh, again, blow it up, and essentially the sub sinks right in front of the captain, and he watches this thing that he put his heart and soul into and risk his life for sink to the bottom of the ocean. Das Boat goes to Das Bottom, and the captain is left with nothing, and it, it really just seems like that's the final straw for him, and he collapses and assumedly dies, yeah. leaving our correspondent Werner alone with him. And that's how the movie ends. Except Werner says, I'm going to write a novel about this someday. As an ending? What did you think of it as an ending? (sighs) Well, I mean, you've probably guessed over the last couple episodes that this movie, I respect it a lot. I think it should be seen, but it keeps me at arm's length in a lot of ways. Yeah. And coming up to this, it seems like a lot of the movie is that things happen to people. And the only thing they can really do is fulfill their positions Mm -hmm. uh, on the boat. And this is a time when things happen to people again. Um, it, it's not a movie where things kind of, I, I find, where things build on each other. Like somebody makes a decision and that decision reverberates throughout the movie. It's like bad situation, an escalated situation, but not one because of what they did previously. Right. Yeah, then later, an even worse situation, but not because of what they did previously. And I wonder if this is maybe because when they made this movie, they had ultimately enough money for, I'm sorry, enough footage for 300 minutes of miniseries that it could break more easily and you could take things out and you wouldn't be losing connective tissue to make sense of things. Mm-hmm. Personal theory could be totally wrong. But so by this time in the movie, it's, as a viewer, I'm already a little bit frustrated that the people don't get to make decisions. And I understand it might be the way that it is, but it's a frustrating experience. And that also kind of keeps me away from being attached to the characters. I mean, to me, they seem more like characterizations than Mm -hmm. characters outside of the captain. 
So this is the fourth time their life has been in danger. And really, it's like, wait it out and see what happens. And this time, it didn't break their way. Right. So I, I don't think it's not in keeping with the movie, but I wouldn't say that it satisfies me in a way. Not oh. that it's obligated to satisfy Steve Baumgartner. <laughs> but it fits. And I'm not saying I want a happy ending necessarily, but it kind of continues the way that the movie handles its characters. Well, is it kind of a, and I'm, I may be misusing the word here, like correct me if I'm wrong, but there is sort of like a nihilist, you know, streak to this film in terms of like, like you said, it doesn't matter what you do. Things happen as they're going to happen. You are going to be the cog in the machine because that's what you are and you're going to do. And you just react. And yeah. am, am, I, am I off base there? And your reactions are usually proscribed by your training and what you're to do. Yeah. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be that way. But as a dramatic experience, I feel like you just sort of have to sit back and say, yeah, okay, sorry that happened to you. It's the life sucks and then you die. You know, reading it that way, that's kind of the message of Das Boat is, at least as far as the captain, I guess, is concerned and, and as far as the correspondent is, is, is just that, you know, it's going to well, be what it's going to be. I don't think it's that life sucks, but I think it's that the experience that these people are essentially given over to mm. sucks, which is part of the reason why I think if there's a villain in this movie, it's not the British, it's just the nature of war. Yeah. So take that, Francois. <laughs> High five, Roger. Well, thank you for talking Das Boat with me, because I think I have thought a lot differently about this movie, kind of bouncing these things back and forth with you. And uh, I've taken a lot away from this discussion that I don't know that I would have gotten on my own. So I appreciate you doing that. You know, right back at you, because I don't have a lot of training in submarines and how people operate with them. When you would come up and say things like they're doing this, they're doing this, they're doing this. This is a hard movie for me as if you were to play along with. Mm. Because I, I, I sort of have to accept whatever decisions they make. I can't say, what would I do in that situation? I'm sort of passive and saying, this is happening to me and I've got to go with it. And you have helped get me out of that to some degree. Das Boat is the movie. That is the end of plot, but that is not the end of the show because it is time for You Can't Handle the Truth. You Can't Handle the Truth. This is where I am going to ask you, our guest host, Steve Baumgartner, three multiple choice questions uh, that are either related to or or semi-related to this film we've been talking about, Das Boat. Answer at least two of the three, and you will win our big prize for today. Today, Steve, you are playing for a genuine U-boat ear trumpet, which is perfect for listening to the nuances of any diesel-powered engine. Are you ready to play Steve Baumgartner? No, but let's do it. <laughs> That's the best attitude we can have right now. Here we go. Are you ready? Question one. Though actually pronounced closer to Das Boot, not Das Boot, the drinking game Das Boot requires a tall boot-shaped glass or Bierstiefel to be downed by the anchor of a four-person team. But according to several beer historians, how did this tradition reportedly get its start? Was it A, Prussian generals hazed new recruits by making them drink from their boots to instill a sense of loyalty. Was it B, American Old West gunslinger Billy the Kid would drink a toast from his own spurred boot to any man he'd just killed? Or was it C, English horse riding clubs of the 1800s gave them to wealthy Englishmen as a gift, complete with fancy spurs and straps? Ooh, um, these are all so tempting. I think that I'm going to cross off B. Uh, so it comes down to 
So no, no, old, no Billy the Kid. And no, I don't buy that one. The Spurs also make me think that that's not conducive to drinking, or at least holding the boot. The Russian Army sounds maybe too obvious, but I'll go with the Russian Army. Choice A. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Actually, it was C. English horse riding clubs in the 1800s used to give them away to the wealthy people who would come to ride the horses. That went out of fashion. And they eventually replaced the shoe-shaped mug with the three-foot-tall yard of ale, if you've heard of people drinking a yard of ale. I have. That's okay, Steve. That's, it's just one. You got two more chances to knock this out of the park. So let's move on to question two. Following Das Boot, director Wolfgang Peterson took on a very different next film and one that continues to scar young children for life with its horse scene, The NeverEnding Story. Which of these facts about that film are not true? Oh. All right. So you're looking for the answer that is not true about the never-ending story. Was it A, that the author of the book on which it is based called the film revolting and claimed the filmmakers, quote, just wanted to make money? Was it B, the oddly dog-looking Falkor the Luck Dragon was named after German art-pop artist Falco? Or C, at its release, the film was the most expensive one ever released in German cinematic history? This one I feel good about. The one that's not true? The one that is not true. It's got to be B. Uh, Falkor, I don't believe he's named after Falco, who is, I believe, Austrian. I mean, I think they filmed the movie before Falco was a global concern. But I do know that if you go to Bavaria Film Studios, you, or at least your child, can ride on Falkor. Oh, well, there you go. So your answer is B, that the uh, Falkor the Luck Dragon was uh, named after the pop artist Falco. That's the false one? Yes. That is correct. That was false. The true uh, answers were that, of course, and I think we may have mentioned it earlier in the show, that The NeverEnding Story took over as the most expensive film ever produced in German cinematic history, but also that the author of the book on which it is made called the film revolting and claimed the filmmakers just wanted to make money. All right, Steve, that is uh, you are one and one. You got one more to go to win the prize. Let's go to question three. Lead actor Jürgen Prochnow has played a number of iconic roles in his career, but which of these roles he was considered for made history with someone else? Was it A, The Terminator in James Cameron's The Terminator? Was it B, Antonio Salieri in Milos Forman's Amadeus? Or C, Captain Von Trapp in Robert Wise's The Sound of Music? He couldn't have been Von Trapp because he would have been like 21 or something when that movie was made, so I'm going to rule out C. Terminator was 84, which was only a couple years after Dust Boat swept the world. You know, I'm going to say A. I've never heard this before, but I can imagine him being considered for the Terminator. That is correct. Steve Baumgartner. Yes, it is true. Jürgen Prochnow was actually in consideration for the role of the Terminator in James Cameron's original Terminator movie. Obviously, the Terminator eventually went on to be, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, Jürgen Prochnow is the Terminator. But victory is yours, Steve Baumgartner, because you got two out of the three there. You win the prize. Congratulations to you. Now you can listen to all the diesel engines you want to. With your own ear trumpet. Thank you. Steve, I I believe now that you have claimed victory uh, in You Can't Handle the Truth, that you have a question to try to stump me. Oh, do I? Now, as you know, women are extremely rare in this movie. Bechdel Dest, don't even try it. But there is, however, at what point in the movie can you look sharp and see a flesh and blood woman on the boat? Choice A, 
after the captain returns from the Vaser, I believe is the name, the ship where the, the higher yacht. officers. Yeah. Um, after the captain returns, deep in the background, you can catch a glimpse of a hiding good time girl brought on board for a brief interlude that appears only in the five hour miniseries. Choice B. During the Gibraltar sequence, legendary stuntwoman and studio good luck charm Agnes Glosser is an anonymous background sailor battling the raging waters. Or choice three, you can see a flesh and blood woman when the properties woman got in the frame and nobody behind the camera noticed. Oh. One of those is true. One of those is true. Okay. One of them is intentional, which is the good time girl. That could make some sense because, you know, there was a lot of other footage that didn't make it into this cut that could have been in the miniseries. I think that's less likely. It seems to me like B was the stunt woman. So she's there, but we're not calling attention to the fact that it's a woman as a stunt person. And C is that the props woman got in frame and nobody noticed. Just because I like it, I'm going with C. The props woman got in the frame and nobody noticed. I'm very proud to say you are correct. And when you or our listeners watch DOS both again, at two hours, 42 minutes, and 49 seconds of the director's cut, look very carefully at the lower left-hand corner of the screen. There's a blonde woman, tiny face. She's far back, but not so far back that the light doesn't catch her skin. And you can see her looking right back at you. Well, now I have a reason to go back and watch all three and a half hours of this movie again so that I can get to that scene. Steve Baumgartner, thank you for playing. You can't handle the truth. I am proud of both of us. Do I have to give back the ear thing? Absolutely not. Thank you. That sound means it's time for rave rental or refund. This is the part where we give our final rating, let's call it. Our thumbs up, our thumbs down, our thumbs sideways about the movie that we have been talking about over these past couple of episodes. Rave, I would go see it in the theater on the first day. It's that good. Uh, Rental, I'll wait for the red box or the streaming service or refund. Give me my money back. The film Dust Boat, the director's cut specifically, Steve Baumgartner. Um, uh, before I answer, I think that people who listen to your show, I feel weird saying you should see this or you shouldn't see this because you've got enough interest in it, you know, and hopefully from the things I've said that aren't entirely glowing, hopefully you said, yeah, that would bother me more than the good stuff. But even though I'm not as in love with it as everybody else, uh, when you said see it in the theater on the first day, this is definitely, that tipped me. Not only do I think your listeners who are interested in submarine movies would be interested in this, you have to see it, but especially if you can see it on the big screen. So um, a qualified rave. Qualified rave. I'm going with rave also. I don't think there's any other rating that I could give this just from the fact of, like you said, this is a movie that that I think would probably be an amazing experience in a theater uh, beyond just being a movie that I enjoyed and that I would I would certainly want to go see. Even if I just saw the trailer for the, for the silly thing, I would want to go see it. So it's a rave for me. That's two raves. Good job, Das Boat. You earned it. You earned it. Oh, man. Does that mean that we're done? It does. It means that we've talked our way all the way through Das Boat. We have had a wonderful couple of episodes, or at least I have. I'm not going to speak for you, Steve. I've had a great couple of episodes talking to you. I hope that you have too. I had a wonderful time. I hope that we get the chance to do this again sometime. We are definitely doing this again if you will show back up. Tell the people what they should know about you. You know, plug away, whatever you want to tell them. I would give you my Twitter handle, but I'm not on social media. Good for Uh, you. Good for you. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, no Facebook, <laughs> no Instagram. I'm a carrier mystery. pigeon. A, Do you have a carrier pigeon handle that we could give out? Too new. Okay. Uh, I guess just what I would leave you with is that uh, when we are all able to go back into movie theaters, please put your phone away. Oh, man. I wish I would have come up with that. You can spread the word, too. Everybody, you spread the word, too. Steve Baumgartner, thank you for being here with us today on Subgenre. This has been a great time. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, Steve Baumgartner. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you love the show and need some more, subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. Believe me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us, just like you did. As we said, this has been the final episode of our Season 1, and Season 2 of Subgenre is not yet a sure thing. So if you can't live without us, and you want us back for another season to cover an all-new type of film outside the major categories, please tell us. You can leave a message and support us with a donation at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. You'll also find us on Insta and Twitter, both at SubgenrePod. So get moving, cinephiles. Ask everyone you know to subscribe to this show, leave your five-star review where you download it, and demand your season two of the Subgenre Podcast. In the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Bunky.